Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod from CNBC. I'm producer Cameron Costa, and on today's podcast, university presidents are under scrutiny for their handling of anti-Semitism on campus, and one Capitol Hill testimony is going viral. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today, calling for the genocide of Jews. President of UPenn, Elizabeth McGill's comments to Congress, and then her other clarifying comments a day later. I think they know it's disgusting, in part because the presidents almost invariably have backtracked a day or two after, and and this keeps happening. We speak with the president of Brandeis University about the role of college leaders. We all have codes of conduct, and those codes of conduct spell out things that are much more stringent than the First Amendment. And so therefore, it's not that gray, at least it wasn't for me. Plus, the other headlines today, a pretty good jobs number for the Fed to work from, big climate deals in Dubai, and has New York really bid farewell to all of its billionaires? Our wealth reporter Robert Frank says maybe not. A new report from the Fiscal Policy Center says the wealth flight from New York during COVID was temporary. It's Friday, December 8th, 2023, and Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand back, by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Happy Friday. Welcome to Squawk Box right here on CNBC. We are live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan. Andrew is on assignment today. He's here, too. He joins us from Chicago. Hi, Andrew. About one hour early, no less. You know, <laughs> oh, that's it's right. 5 a.m. here. Oh, that's right. Just, Just on the edge of the time change. There. You didn't have time yeah. to, to shift to that. You're, you're still on East Coast time. No excuses here. You, you look bright, bright, bright tailed and bushy eyed or whatever the hell it is. Uh, I hope you weren't out super late at dinner last How's the aura ring? No. Uh, I haven't checked. I haven't checked. We'll see. Me, smart, smart yeah. man. Don't look. Don't want to know. I'm thinking mid 60s. We'll see. We'll see. And this really is sort of the intersection of Wall Street and finance and universities and free speech and what all of it means. Uh, talking about that controversial testimony by three university presidents on Capitol Hill this week. Uh, here's one key exchange between UPenn President Liz McGill and New York Congresswoman uh, Elise Stefanik. I am asking, specifically calling for the genocide of Jews, does that constitute bullying or harassment? If it is directed and severe or pervasive, it is harassment. So the answer is yes. It is a context-dependent decision, Congresswoman. It's a context-dependent decision. That's your testimony today. Calling for the genocide of Jews is depending upon the context. That is not bullying or harassment. This is the easiest question to answer yes, Ms. McGill. Now the board of Penn's Warden Business School asking McGill to resign with immediate effect. And then separately, a new report out that Ross Stevens, the founder and CEO of Stoneridge Asset Management and Alumnus, of the school, planning to withdraw a gift uh, worth about $100 million to protest the school's response to anti-Semitism on campus. According to a letter uh, from Stevens to his firm that was viewed by CNBC, the gift was uh, in the form of a limited partnership agreement that he had the right to rescind. And he said he intends to do so, absent a change in leadership and values at Penn in the very near future. Meantime, Rabbi uh, David Wolpe has now resigned from Harvard University's anti-Semitism advisory committee. He said his decision was based on, quote, events on campus and the painfully inadequate testimony of President Claudine Gay at this week's congressional hearing. And the House Education Committee has launched a probe into Harvard, Penn, and MIT 
following that hearing. We're going to talk to the president of Brandeis University a little later, but we've talked about people uh, saying, I won't donate further. It, this is now at a whole new level uh, to have a $100 million donation effectively withdrawn uh, on the basis of the reputational damage, and that is contractual uh, in effectively the way the gift was given uh, based on the policies of Stone Ridge, which is the investment firm, and effectively what they're doing, because they own the firm, they're saying they're going to retire the units or retire the shares uh, so that uh, the University of Pennsylvania wouldn't be able to access them. Of course, the big question is, is this part of a larger negotiation uh, simply to, uh, uh, to, to oust the president? And if, in fact, the president were removed, would all these things change? It looks like it probably would, but we still don't know why or yeah. where but the, the, the university uh, board and trustees sit on this very issue. Just very quickly, the Wharton board did this because that gift went to, to establish a finance school. Mm -hmm. So maybe not unrelatedly, the Wharton School, their own board probably doesn't have a whole lot of say over what the rest of the university right. does, but they're trying to make sure that they say, hey, we are not a fan of this. I don't know if I'd do a, uh, oof, I don't want to call it that, but I, 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 of the three that, or four that testified, Liz Miguel seems like she may have some of the biggest uh, problems. Uh, Andrew, Congresswoman, uh, Stefanik actually has a big piece in the journal today, a, a big op-ed piece, and the thrust is college presidents are directly responsible for the hatred that has flourished on campus since October 7th. And, and she does point out, at, at Harvard, the, the school has actually banned cis heterosexism. I, I got to figure, I think I got an idea what that might be, but there's, I don't, there's like a lot of genders, like, 15 or something, but also fat phobia. I, I got what that is. Yep. Uh, using the wrong pronoun. All those qualify as abuse and, and it perpetuates violence on the campus, but apparently not some of these other things. So it's all just so hard to, to fathom how we got here. Maybe it's not that hard, I, but, but it, it still strikes me as, as insane that, that you know, we've gotten rid of, of statues of, of Thomas Jefferson and Christopher Columbus, but it's almost as if Hitler's making a comeback. And I don't know, it couldn't have just happened in a month. It couldn't have, or two months, however, however long it's been. But it crept up on, on all of Kraft, us. It, look, Robert Kraft started that foundation that he's been working, started making those huge donations to try and fight anti-Semitism. He said he saw it about four years ago. Um, it, 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 it's come as a bigger surprise to me to see exactly where things stand at this point. But I was talking to him outside the other day when he was here. And he said he started noticing this and was concerned enough to put his money there about four years ago. See what I just can't understand is where the boards are, where the trustees are. Uh, you know, there, there are some good people on these boards of these universities. Uh, Penny <laughs> good people on both the, sides, uh, <laughs> Andrew. No, no, uh, there are, but there, there are people who are, 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 are at no, least up until cliche, now, that, I would have told that, you are talented yeah. and thoughtful, and yeah. it, it, it makes it a harder argument to say they're talented and thoughtful today, given, given that they are, have continued to support uh, leaders that have equivocated on this issue in a way that I think the, the average, uh, uh, I would hope the average American uh, would palpably, you know, be disgusted. It's, it's disgusting to see these things and then to see these presidents. I mean, I, I think they know it's disgusting in part because the presidents almost invariably have backtracked a day or two after. And, and this keeps happening. Big they say, oh, it's fine. Yeah. And then they then they apologize for what they did. But they had hired um, like 
PR firms to prepare them for the testimony in front of Congress, and that's what they came up with. So they couldn't, you know, they supposedly had some qualifications to get hired as the president of the most elite universities in the world. They had to have some kind of qualifications, and yet they had to hire PR firms to talk about maybe that anti-Semitism. Well, they, they, they refused to, to admit the original mistake and dug down and dug down and dug down and dug down. But down when it. you think was, about sending your kids to Harvard now, what, what is the advantage, or Penn, what, and I sent one to Penn, what's the advantage, where, it, academically, is that where you're learning really, is that where they're at the top of the, uh, of the heap for, for right. universities? If they're learning all this other, other stuff, it makes me question reputationally the whole uh, big the reputation that these places well, get let me ask you a separate. Let me ask you a separate question. It's a management question. You know, most universities in America, especially the, the top universities, the, the presidents of the universities come up through the system. They're academics that are leading these institutions. Uh, they're not considered... That might be the uh, first problem. Managers, if you will, business managers. And these, by the way, are clearly billion-dollar, multi-billion-dollar businesses uh, with, with, you know, billion-dollar brands now and reputations, and, they, and oftentimes they own hospitals and other things, there's a real question mark to me about who is supposed to manage these things, especially in, in, in crises and have to make very difficult decisions. Uh, it's not to say that academics can't do this job. And by the way, you look at a, a Cleveland Clinic or a Mayo Clinic, doctors have typically come up yes. uh, through the ranks and, I think it's and run those institutions. But, but and it the, is important to have them there, but I wonder in these... And I think about some of the institutions I know. When you bring in somebody from the outside, that's the surest way to mess up the culture. Um, <laughs> we've seen it in workplaces where we've been before. If but, you don't understand I, I the, look at the, the basic culture I, of the place, it's a problem. The question may be the culture at these places may be seriously corrupted. Well, I, but I also think about the fabulous alumni uh, that have right. come out of these institutions. Talk about they're being part of that, that <laughs> system. All, no, they are. Horrified. No, no, what I'm saying... What I'm suggesting, though, is I, I imagine that there are some very remarkable alumni uh, who are uh, tremendous MIT? managers. Who, MIT? Who, who could, I mean, look, Joe, you could take the job, yeah. but the point is. Right. See you guys. I'm not, admitting, may, I'm not admitting it anymore. I went to Boulder. That's my, that's there may I'm be people out there that you could put into these roles, is all I'm suggesting, uh, that have uh, both a, a, a connection to the university, a, an academic connection, but also um, perhaps a some, uh, some talents and experiences uh, uh, managing huge institutions uh, that have controversial and, and difficult you, things you that they seem, need to grapple uh, with. You seem, this is all such heady, serious stuff, but you seem a little bit, uh, I don't know, I'm not going to say tired, but how late were you in Santelli out last night uh, <laughs> exactly? Was it, uh, did you close? The place down? Were you on Rush Street? What, what, what was the, uh, you know, the windy what was city the here? What was the venue? It's, it's not that windy. It's a toddling city, town, but... my friend. It's a, it's a toddling town. And uh, did you talk to Rick at least? Did you say, hey, I didn't I'm get. In... I haven't gotten to see Rick. I, I was here. I, I was interviewing uh, Michael Lewis, uh, oh, okay. the great author, of course, who's right. just written this You're book working. about uh, SBF, uh, Sam Bankman Freed. But um, All right. Well, I, there's uh, still time. I know, those places are open right now, like some of them. So call Rick. It's 9 o'clock somewhere. Yeah. Yeah, it's 9 o'clock somewhere. Cheese will be next. The conversation continues up next on Squawk Pod. The purpose, really, of the university, free speech is critical to American democracy uh, and to all democratic institutions. 
But first and foremost is really providing a safe and good environment for learning. A frank discussion with the president of Brandeis University, Ron Leibowitz, on the delicate dance of upholding free speech while tackling hate speech. We'll be right back. You're listening to Squawk Pod. Good morning and welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. I'm Joe Kernan, along with Becky Quick and Andrew Ross Sorkin, who's on assignment uh, in Chicago. Brandeis uh, University was founded uh, by the Jewish community in 1948 to counter anti-Semitism. It's weighing in on the terrorist attacks in Israel and uh, subsequent events. In a recent Boston Globe op-ed, their president, Ron Leibowitz, discussed what the school is doing to address anti-Semitism while upholding free speech. Brandeis President Ron Leibowitz uh, joins us this morning. Uh, good to see you, uh, uh, President Leibowitz. Did you have an idea, would you say, three, four, five years ago that, that there was an undercurrent that, to the extent of what we've seen on college campuses since October 7th? I've been president here since 2016, and anti-Semitism has been a problem for a long time uh, on college university campuses. Here, it's a little bit more uh, focused because we are a Jewish-founded institution with roots. Um, and years ago, started looking into how we might uh, address the issue. I started a conversation with Robert Kraft from the Foundation to Combat Anti-Semitism, who himself was uh, dedicated to this issue. And together, uh, we've created a program, a three-pronged program here at Brandeis that began before October 7th. Uh, to begin uh, addressing issues of anti-Semitism. I'm pretty familiar with, with, with Brandeis, and, and actually, my, you probably know my, my professor, David Hausman, uh, one of the great alumni uh, of Brandeis, still a uh, biology professor uh, at, at MIT, and used to play golf at Leo J. Martin, so I have a ball thing. I, I know it very well. You're not very far from Harvard. That's my point, I guess, uh, President Leibowitz, and, and Distance-wise, you're not very far, but, but I would say in terms of how you're approaching this, you're very far. Well, as I said, we're very conscious of this issue of uh, being who we are and the values upon which the university was founded. And so uh, I believe as, as leader of the institution, we should take a leadership role in higher education and try to develop programs, especially ones that try to help university leadership uh, recognize uh, anti-Semitism and address it. And we had our first big uh, gathering last month in November, planned way back in the spring, that brought more than 100 administrators to uh, Brandeis University. Uh, presidents, provosts, deans, DEI officers, admissions officers, deans of students, to talk about these issues. We had legal scholars here, Title VI experts here, freedom of speech experts here, DEI experts here, to talk about the issues over a two-day period. And it was quite a, quite a good conference. Right. Uh, I understand that. Did, did you witness any of the testimony from the, the Harvard's president, Penn's president, or MIT's president? And what would be your, did they not attend your seminars? Uh, I did. Uh, I did see portions, not the whole thing. I was traveling on behalf of the university. But of course, I've, I've read now uh, the reactions to those testimonies. Uh, they themselves did not uh, attend. But of course, they all sent teams here to Brandeis. And, and their staff members uh, did, in fact, engage in these issues. Um, we had a meeting of, of university presidents in Washington in October, about eight days after the incident, and we had a good conversation among the presidents about the incident. Uh, I spoke, I think, very forthrightly uh, about the issues on campus, uh, and we did have long conversations. Well, when, when you're, I mean, obviously you're, you're trying to address the root causes of, of what is, uh, now we know, a, a, a pretty significant problem. 
uh, President Leibowitz, and I'm wondering if you can try to identify any of the root causes that you saw Congresswoman Stefanik in some of her questions to, to the three, and she wrote an op-ed piece today. I mean, at Harvard, you can be thrown out, I guess, for something called cis heterosexism or fat phobia uh, or misgendering someone, uh, but she was un the Harvard president was unable to say that, that calling for an intifada, global intifada or genocide to, to the entire Jewish race, that that was, uh, I don't know, as bad as misgendering someone. <laughs> You've got some serious work to do here. We do. We do have serious work to do. And I think um, presidents, I'd rather not speak about other presidents, but rather talk about what we're doing. But I will say that um, the whole issue of academic freedom and freedom of speech uh, more or less has, has been somewhat confused in all this. I mean, if you step back and you ask yourself what's going on here, the purpose really of the university, free speech is critical to American democracy uh, and to all democratic institutions. But first and foremost is really providing a safe and good environment for learning. Um, and to the extent that one can express free speech without crossing that line into inhibiting others from learning, uh, that's really the key here. So no one's really talking about stopping free speech. It's just that you don't choose to use some speech that, of course, uh, inhibits uh, the freedom of others to learn and to do it in an open way. And that's what's at here. If you stick to uh, the strict definition of free speech, and we are private institutions also, so there is some leeway here in what we can do. We all have codes of conduct, and those codes of conduct spell out things that are much more stringent uh, than the First Amendment. Um, and so, therefore, it's not that uh, it, it, it's not that gray. At least it wasn't for me. No, it, it doesn't seem to be, and it's not, I don't think it's a gray area at all that that it, that whole swaths of Jewish students are afraid to walk down their their, their campus right now. They're fearing for their safety. So. You know, it, the theoretical things are one thing and free speech versus, you know, what you're allowed to say. But the basic safety of a student on, on a college campus should not be something we're, we're debating about. And it, uh, we've lost our way, uh, President Leibowitz. We need to get it back quickly. But uh, in your efforts, hopefully, we'll, we'll, we'll go a long way towards that. But it's good to have you on today. Thanks. Thank you, Joe. Thank you. Next on Squawk Pod, was the so-called exodus of wealth from New York City exaggerated? Our wealth reporter Robert Frank has the story. The report says, look, they all left. The rate of out-migration declined after they all left, so therefore it's not a problem. Plus the strong-ish November jobs report and COP28. Our own Diana Olick is on the ground at the UN conference in Dubai. This is really the biggest business story of this generation. Climate, money, climate tech, every aspect of it. We're back right after this. You're listening to Squawk Pod from CNBC. Among the other headlines to wrap up your week, today's jobs number. Investors and the Federal Reserve were awaiting the Labor Department's November report, and it's out. Here's their November read on the big jobs, jobs, jobs report. 199,000, 199,000, a bit better than expectations. Payrolls rose 199,000 last month, and the unemployment rate ticked down to 3.7%. Average hourly earnings, a key part of the inflation calculus, rose by four-tenths of a percent for the month, up 4% from a year ago. 
Stephanie Link, Chief Investment Officer and Portfolio Manager at Hightower Advisors, was on our TV broadcast as those numbers crossed the wires. Overall, inflation is coming down. If you look at the core PCE number on a six-month annualized basis, you're at 2.5%. And so the Fed wants to get that to about 2%. So we're making progress. And again, these numbers today, I want jobs. I want the, the labor market to stay strong as long as average hourly earnings don't really skyrocket. So I think that 4% number is a good number. Um, and I think that's very positive for the consumer, which is 70% of our economy. The reason we care so much about this report every month is because our central bank uses it, in part, to determine the health of our economy and the actions they'll take to either preserve or improve it. At the moment, we're waiting for the Federal Reserve to officially stop hiking interest rates and potentially start cutting rates after its long hiking campaign. President Biden's former Council of Economic Advisors Chair Cecilia Rouse was on our broadcast, too, this morning. She's currently an economics professor at Princeton, and soon she'll be the president in Brookings. She put the numbers in context with other data we got this week, like rates of quitting and rates of hiring. Overall, these are data that are consistent with a cooling labor market, which is what I think the Fed is, is fundamentally looking for. The decrease in the unemployment rate, along with a slight increase in labor force participation, is interesting. So, not a bad report. Our next clues for the Fed's playbook, well, those come during the Fed's two-day meeting next week. So stay tuned. For now, here's Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew ross with some more news that got them squawking today, starting with what's going on at the 2023 United Nations Climate Change Conference in the UAE. It's commonly called COP28. As negotiations over the future of fossil fuels intensifies at the COP28 climate summit in Dubai, side deals are on other issues are already being made and the money is flowing. Diana Olick joins us from Dubai with more on this. Diana? Good morning, Becky. Yeah, a major focus we're seeing at this COP, agriculture, which accounts for 10 percent of global greenhouse gas emissions. Today, an announcement from the U.S. Department of Agriculture about an investment fund launched with the UAE that has now grown to $17 billion. We caught up with Agriculture Secretary Vilsack here this morning. We're encouraging more what are called sprint uh, innovations, an effort to try to get more technology and innovations into the system so that we can reduce greenhouse gas emissions, sequester more carbon, be more climate smart. Uh, 78 sprints, uh, basically resources being invested in everything from reducing methane in livestock to creating new apps for farmers worldwide so they have a better understanding of uh, how their soil is operating under a difficult climate. This includes working with major food producers on this as well as leaders in sustainable aviation fuel, which is lar- largely made out of biomass. Executives that I've interviewed here sees the COP as the new Davos. That's how much the synergies between corporations and governments and deals are really happening here, Becky. Hey, Diana, how, how different is this COP than, let's say, a COP four years ago? I, I just wonder because there's been a lot of talk that different administrations mean that money and deals make sense when they didn't in the past. What happens if there's a new administration next time around? 
Well, look, this COP has been all about action. In fact, they're calling it the COP of action. I was in Glasgow at COP26 two years ago, and there were corporate executives there, but not the level that we're seeing here and the money flowing and the deals being made and everyone saying that this is really the biggest business story of this generation, climate, money, climate tech, every aspect of it. So the question is, if we have a different administration that pulls us out of the Paris Agreement, the corporations will likely stay. We saw that before, and we probably will see it again. Becky. All right, Diana, thank you. Diana Olick. Carlisle Group uh, co-founder David Rudenstein is in talks to acquire the Baltimore Orioles. That's according uh, to a Bloomberg report that said nothing has been finalized and that the talks could still uh, fall apart. Reports last year said Rubenstein told key backers of the Orioles he would consider buying the team uh, if it were to come up for sale. Nice ballpark. Oh, yeah, and Camden a lot of Europe. times I think... I think you sometimes, you know, buy teams when they're, you know, not really in contention. And, and uh, he could just step right into, you know, get those great seats and watching a really competitive. I don't know. Yeah, the I'm, reason I'm, you buy it when they're not in contention is it, because it's, of the cost. Of money. You're trying to buy low. But they, they had a great, uh, great year. I guess they kind of cooled off toward, towards the end. But I'd like to wonder if I can be part of that group. Probably not. You want to be Chuck? Chuck Kernan is going to be part of that group. Chuck, Chuck Kernan might. Uh, Chuck, I'm try, I, I, anybody but. I don't see you as a Chuck. No, I don't see me, yeah. me as a Chuck. Well, that's why Joe Scarborough was not. His name is Charles. Yeah. And and so he was not a Chuck either. So. His middle name's Joe, though, right? Yeah. Yeah. Right. You could go by Richard. I could. Make some comment about that. No, no. All right. Just mentioning. Okay. Holding my yeah. tongue. I know. I see you. It's his middle name. That's all. Is Ross your actual middle name, or do you have another middle name? Well, now it's Jonathan, so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> right. No, but that's a family name. That's like your grandmother's name or something, right? You, Ross you, you, is my, uh, my, my middle name, and uh, if you want to steal my credit cards, it's my mother's maiden name. Ah. Oh, that's right. That's a good one. Right, right. They do yeah. it. Someone asked me for that yesterday. Your mother's maiden name? Yeah. Well, the exodus of wealth from New York City may have been greatly exaggerated. Robert Frank has some new data that may put that myth to rest. This is interesting. Hit me with it, Robert. Well, Becky, a new report from the Fiscal Policy Center says the wealth flight from New York during COVID was temporary. The report said New York lost 430,000 residents between 2020 and 2022. Nearly a third of them were making more than $172,000 a year. But by the end of 2022, that out-migration for those top earners returned to the pre-pandemic levels. The report also said about 2,400 millionaire earners moved out, yet the state created over 17,000 new millionaires, meaning the overall millionaire population actually grew during COVID and post-COVID despite that 2021 tax hike. Quote, not only is the high earner tax migration largely a myth, the report said, but there is no need to fear for the state's fiscal and economic future. Now, New York State's controller Tom DiNapoli issued a contrasting report. He warned of lower tax revenue from high earners who are leaving. He said, quote, with high income earners comprising a large share of personal income tax collections, policymakers will need to carefully consider any effect of the movement of taxpayers on state and local budget matters. Now, New York faces a $4 billion budget deficit next year. Legislators are urging the governor to raise taxes on higher earners. So what the report says, look, they all left. The rate of out-migration declined after they all left. So therefore, it's not a problem. I want to raise the, what we call 
high earners. Like the 175, forget about that. that those people are not high earners in New York. 175. And then well, the, the top 20% in New York State. Oh, still, uh, you, you lose five or six billionaires. Yeah. And that, that there's a difference between mean and median, I think, in this case. Well, it, What's a millionaire? Is that a, a, they make a million dollars a year? Million dollar earner. They, they million earn a million dollars a year. That's okay. right. You'd miss those guys. That's right. And, and it was all because the stock market boom in 2021, when, when stocks were up 30%. That's not going to happen why. every year. Right, right. Yeah. And, and it's also arguing, well, they all left and the rate of decline you know, has slowed. Of course it did, because most of them are gone. But still, if you look at that top 20%, they're still leaving at twice the rate that they were pre-pandemic. So it's, it's still a big problem. Right. And we're seeing it in the tax rolls. That's the podcast for today and for the week. Thanks for tuning in. If you want more Squawk Pod, check your feed. We have so many episodes waiting for you, including two that feature a special extended audio edition of CNBC's last interview with Berkshire Hathaway Vice Chair Charlie Munger, just two weeks before he passed at age 99. Becky Quick has an extended version of her interview with Charlie Munger that's fabulous. You should go listen and download that immediately. It's so much more than just an interview. Becky herself guides us through her many years of covering Charlie and Warren Buffett. Charlie Munger, a life of wit and wisdom, is a listen you don't want to miss. Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin every weekday morning on CNBC starting at 6 a.m. Eastern. You can get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show by following Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. If you follow us, that means you'll get a notification every time we push out an episode like that Charlie Munger special. Have a lovely weekend, and we'll catch you back here on Monday. We are clear. Thanks, guys. Thank you so much.